Bonjour and welcome to the Good Life France podcast. I'm Janine Marsh. I'm a writer of books, editor of a magazine, and I'm the Forrest Gump of travel writing about France. I started about 10 years ago and I just couldn't stop. I'm a Brit, a Londoner, as you can probably tell from my accent, but I now live in France in the middle of nowhere in the far north in a place called the Seven Valleys. My village is tiny. It's about 150 people and a thousand cows. There are no shops and no bars. And I have to say, I frequently leave my other half here to look after our 60 animals while I travel all over France, seeking more wonderful places to share with you. In this podcast, I'll be sharing everything you want to know about France and more with my podcast partner, Olivier Geoffrey. Hello, partner Janine. Hello, Hello. everyone. <laughs> I'm Oli. I'm uh, Janine Opposite, a Frenchman who lives uh, in the UK. But I go back to France often. Last week, actually, I was in Paris and went to one of my favorite areas again, Montmartre. Some say that there is a village in every big city in the world. Or oh, that's uh, only me saying that? Not sure. Anyway, <laughs> for Paris, it is Montmartre, definitely a must-see. It's a, a different part of Paris. You don't feel like being in a big city at all in Montmartre. And the view is, oh my God, premium. And the music is everywhere. Top tip, it's one of the best areas of Paris to celebrate Bastille Day. And I believe that this is our topic today, Janine. Bastille Day, best transition ever. That's an excellent transition, Ollie. And yes, you're quite right. Bastille Day, that's what we're going to be talking about. And before you say, what is that? Any French people listening, bear with me as we'll be revealing what it's all about, why we call it that, the history, the legends, and loads of fun facts. The Good Life France podcast. Everything you want to know about France and more with Janine Marsh and Olivier Geoffrey. Let's kick off with what is Bastille Day? So first, I have to tell you that in France, this most important national holiday, which is held on the 14th of July, is not called Bastille Day at all. It's called, rather unimaginatively, 14 juillet, or 13th of July in English, or it's called Fête Nationale, National Fête or National Holiday. Yes, it's true. If you say happy uh, Bastille Day to a French person, they will not know what you're talking about at all. We never say that. And we never understand why English-speaking countries call it that. <laughs> well, I'm going to reveal all later. But first, let's talk about what 14th of July in France is all about. So over to Professor Oli for a history lesson. Thank you, my dear student. This uh, famous event, which was to start a change to the course of history, took place at a time of great difficulty for France. Enormous sums of money had been spent on wars. Nothing new there, is it? And of course, it was the uh, ordinary people who paid for these wars and got little or nothing back in return. Tax after tax, always increasing so that the royal coffers could be filled. Meanwhile, life for the common man was difficult. Lack of money, lack of food, because there has been a bad harvest, which led to flower shortages, lack of much comfort on a daily basis, etc., etc. People were miserable, but the royal family, King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette and the rich nobles who ruled, continued to live their indulged and gilded existence. It seemed that uh, they were oblivious to the suffering of the uh, ordinary people. And to say the least, I'm not happy about that at all. That's why I'm going to demonstrate on the street right after that recording, just for the sake of complaining. It's never too late. <laughs> of course you are, because French people, as we all know, love to complain. Anyway, moving swiftly on. I did actually read that on the day that the Bastille was stormed in Paris, Louis XVI, who liked to keep a diary, wrote for that day, 
quote, nothing, unquote. He was actually referring to his day's hunting, which was the most important thing in the world to him. But he didn't say a word about what went on in Paris. So, yes, I think you're right. The rich and powerful were probably totally oblivious. Indeed. No one can really pinpoint uh, what actually made everything kick off on the 14th of July, 1789. The king had recently sacked his uh, finance minister, who was quite popular, as he had suggested that the royal family try to budget to save money. And there were rumors that a new parliamentary body, which was believed to be more on the side of the uh, ordinary man, would be stopped as well. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows about the popular myth, and it is a myth, I'm sure, that when Queen Marie Antoinette was told of bread shortages in Paris, she said, let them eat cake. But there's absolutely no proof that she actually said this. And in fact, there is a recording that an earlier queen said it too. What is known is that uh, on that day, a crowd gathered, some had guns, and the angry mob, which got bigger and bigger, marched to the Bastille to obtain powder for the guns. The Bastille was then a medieval fortress, which served as a prison and a warehouse for munitions and gunpowder, and also for uh, bread grain. Negotiations between uh, the governor of the Bastille and the spokesman of the mob quickly escalated into an angry shouting match, and the Bastille guards opened fire, killing hundreds of people. A rescue team was called to support the guards and hold the Bastille, but they unexpectedly decided to side with the crowd. Good men. The Bastille was surrendered after a fight and the building was destroyed. This day started a chain of action that would lead to the execution of the majority of the aristocracy of France, including the royal family, and there would be years of turmoil and horror from which would emerge a new rule. Boom, that's how we do things in France. So now you understand the strikes, the demonstrations, the complaining, and probably many other behaviors that are said to be very French too. Absolutely. You know, when the king was informed of what was happening at the Bastille, he said to his men, is this a revolt? And he was told, no, majesty, this is a revolution. So on the 14th of July, Bastille Day, as we know it now, it essentially now celebrates the French Revolution. And we're going to explain more about why, how and what. But before we do that, we need to talk about what actually caused the French Revolution. And it was a number of things, but one of the major issues was to do with bread. Of course it was, Janine. We French do love our bread. Nobody, and by that I mean nobody, is allowed to change that. <laughs> It's true. So apparently... I read 98% of the French eat bread every day. And certainly when, you know, when I meet my neighbors and friends out here, they pretty much do eat bread every day. And in the old days, bread was seriously important, so much more so even than now. It was a main food for the poor who spent up to half their daily wages on bread alone. I mean, half your wages. So grain and bread riots were really common. People often protested against the price or the lack of grain or how the bread was made because sometimes bakers would mix in all sorts of unpleasant things just to bulk it out, you know. And sometimes the riots spilled out across entire regions in France. In fact, just 14 years before Bastille Day, there had been 300 riots in just three weeks because of a lack of bread. So the riots resulted in the fall of the Bastille on 14th of July, 1789. That helped start the French Revolution to begin. And it wasn't just a search for arms, you know, for gunpowder for their guns, but it was also a search for grain because that was also stored at the Bastille. So the bad harvest saw prices go so high that people were spending up to 90% on bread alone. 
I just can't imagine that. So they had 10% of their wages left on average for everything else, for coal, you know, for their fires, for medicine, for clothes, meat, anything else. 90% of your wages are bread. Yeah, it's enormous. And, and it's true. Parisian peasants rightly suspected that uh, merchants and bakers had hoarding grain in uh, anticipation of higher prices and took to the streets to protest. They even thought the king was hoarding grain and uh, that uh, the nobility were deliberately trying to starve the masses. That later, the government that was formed after the revolution definitely learned their lesson because one of their main goals was to make sure that everyone had quality bread every day. So in 1793, the convention, the post-revolution government, they created a new law which said, richness and poverty must both disappear from the government of equality. It will no longer make a bread of wheat for the rich and a bread of bran for the poor. All bakers will be held under the penalty of imprisonment to make only one type of bread, the bread of equality. Wow. For the rest yep. of that year, the revolution simmered and on the 5th and the 6th of uh, October, a mob marched on the Palace of Versailles. It started in the marketplaces of Paris, where uh, the women were complaining about the lack of bread again and the prices, and they just had enough of a king who wasn't doing anything to make things better for them. So it's known as the March of the Women. About 7,000 people, men and women by then, marched, and it was this that delivered the death blow for the French monarchy. Just imagine it. It was a rainy day. It's October, you know, autumnal. It takes about six hours to walk from Paris to Versailles. They can't have had comfortable shoes on, so they must have been really miserable, getting more and more angry. They were exhausted when they finally arrived and they were drenched. It was really complicated. People made stirring speeches and meetings were held and promises were made on by the royal family's spokesperson, but it didn't seem to calm the crowd at all. The next day, a mob broke into the palace and they went for Marie Antoinette because they hated her so much. They kind of blamed a lot on her because she was quite a spendthrift. She loved to buy dresses. Apparently, she bought 300 dresses a year and shoot 500 pairs of shoes in her wardrobe, you know. And for them, that represented the whole imbalance of their poverty and the indulgence of these people. This mob, they said they were going to tear out her heart. They were going to cut off her head and fricassee her liver. She ran and hid, not surprisingly, and she managed to escape at that point. But the crowd insisted that the royal family go to Paris with them. And they did. They basically were in house prison in the Tuileries Palace in Paris. And it was a gilded prison and they had a bit of freedom, but they couldn't leave. That day, Versailles was boarded up to keep looters out. And essentially, it was the end of the monarchy, though they lasted a little while longer. A few days after that, a certain Dr. Guillotine proposed his fun new scientific device be tested. Oof, I don't like that noise at no. all. <laughs> Creepy. And over the course of the French Revolution, which didn't end for another 10 years in all, tens of thousands of people were guillotined to death. Some of the leaders who directed France during the revolutionary years, like Maximilien Robespierre, a bourgeois lawyer, triggered the bloodiest chapter of the French Revolution, known as the Reign of Terror, from 1793-1794. Robespierre was not a nice man and very odd. He replaced Catholicism with a so-called religion called the Cult of the Supreme Being and made himself head of it, obviously. It's estimated more than 40,000 people died during the Reign of Terror, either executed or murdered, 
the guillotine worked overtime and it was fast. It had lots of nicknames like Madame la guillotine, the widow, the patriotic shortener, the national razor, the regretful climb, and the silence mill as well. Louis XVI was beheaded on the 28th of January 1793 after a trial in which his own cousin voted for his death. Family, huh? The execution took place in what is now Place de la Concorde in Paris. It's said that people dipped their handkerchiefs in his blood and sold locks of his hair as souvenirs. Actually, one handkerchief was found more than 200 years later, hidden in a dried squash. Ew. Uh, nine months later, Marie-Antoinette followed. Her last words were, pardonnez-moi, monsieur, je ne l'ai pas fait exprès. In English, pardon, monsieur, I did not do it on purpose. When she accidentally trod on the executioner's foot. Fun fact for you, kind of, that guy was the same man who had killed her husband. Marie Antoinette's remains were taken to a graveyard behind the church of Madeleine, about half a mile north, but the gravediggers were taking a lunch break. And that gave one Marie Grosshoods, later known as Madame Tussaud, enough time to make a wax imprint of Marie Antoinette's face before she was placed in an unmarked grave. Madame Tussaud made many wax models during the revolution, including the King and Robespierre. She'd been an art teacher to the King's sister and then later moved to London where she set up a museum with all of her waxworks. And you can still see that mask there to this day, but it could have been so different. Louis and Marie Antoinette nearly escaped with their children. Indeed, they did. Uh, American royalists offered to try to help them escape on a ship to America. The captain of the ship was found, a Captain Clough, and he wrote to his wife in Maine, telling her to get the house ready for the Queen. And apparently, she told all her friends and everyone bought new dresses ready for the big moment. Oh, I love that. That's, that's such a cool fact. <laughs> the escape plan is known as the flight to Varennes, and the royal family bundled into a, a coach on the 20th of June 1791 and left Paris, but that didn't get very far. The king was a bit of a ditherer and delayed things. Plus, he apparently made them late as he wanted to drink wine and eat cheese. Why not? Which kind of nails the whole problem of the royal family in France, really. Their coach broke down and unlucky for them, someone recognized the king from his likeness on a coin and it really was a nail in the coffin, so to speak, for their future. So the escape plan failed and the ship left laden with royal belongings, furniture and fabrics and paintings and such like. Mrs. Clough papered the house with uh, the royal paper and filled it with furniture and it became known as the Marie Antoinette House. Yes, so that was the end of them, basically. So back to that very first question. Why do we call it Bastille Day? And I know the answer to this because last year I said, happy Bastille Day to my bread man, who is not like it sounds a man made of bread, but the man who delivers bread to all the little villages in the seven valleys where I live. Anyway, he said, what are you talking about? Because as you said, Ollie, French people have no idea what that means. So here's why we call it that according to Breadman, who is also a history fan. 14th July isn't just about the storming of the Bastille, which kick-started the French Revolution in 1789. For the French, it's also about what happened the year after, again on the 14th of July, when a one-off national holiday was declared known as the Fête de la Fédération. A huge mass gathered in Paris to attend a military parade led by the Marquis de Lafayette, the same one who sailed to America to help in the American Revolution. And at that fête, the King and Queen 
swore an oath of loyalty to the nation. So they were making some efforts to deal with the mob, just not enough, basically. So a hundred years later, it was decided to have an annual public holiday to commemorate the French Revolution in some way. And there was a big meeting about what day should we have it? And they discussed dates and they highlighted reasons for it. For instance, someone suggested it should be 28th of January because that was the day that Louis XVI was beheaded in 1793. But in the end, they went for 14th of July, which was a date of two major events. However, it was never clear which was the exact one. Was it the Bastille Day or was it the first holiday that they celebrated? Clearly, English speakers decided which one of the dates excited them more, the bloodthirsty one. <laughs> of mm. course. A bread man, that man who delivers my bread, says that for him, 14th of July is all about the bread because it's a symbol of equality, as we said earlier. But thanks to the French Revolution, it is now even more important. So how do we celebrate it today? Well, actually, the festivities start the night before, quite often on the 13th of July. And for some, this is the best bit, because all over France, there are their Bal des Pompiers, the firemen's balls, parties hosted at fire stations, and anyone can go along and join in the dancing. But why, you might well be asking me, Do firemen hold balls? Well, it's a long-standing tradition in France that officially began in 1937 when a group of people followed firefighters back from a Fête National Parade. So at our local fire station, it's very much a family affair. There's like vintage music and everyone just dances and, you know, there's a bit of food and glass of wine. But I hear that at some, there are firemen prancing about a la Chippendale style. <laughs> Never seen that one. But it's all about fundraising, really. So it's in a good cause. Yes. And uh, about that, Janine, I know where those happens. I'll tell you how fair, I promise. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I know If anyone wants to know, write to me and me and Ollie will tell you, okay? <laughs> We will. And then the next day is a big day, the 14th of July, one of the most important days of the year. It's time for French people to go a little bit wild and have fun. Almost all French towns will have some sort of celebrations from uh, parades to fêtes and concerts and dinner. Fireworks are also a big part of the celebration. Of course, Paris uh, has a major display, but many other smaller towns and cities will have big displays too, often paired with music. And of course, one song in particular celebrates the French Revolution, La Marseillaise, called that as it was sung in Paris by uh, revolutionaries from Marseille. It became the anthem of the revolution. The words then were different and insulted the king and queen, It was adopted as a French national anthem in 1795. Let's have a quick listen. It's quite powerful, isn't it? Yeah, it's very powerful. I love that tune. Apparently, so did Marie Antoinette, ironically. She used to play on her harpsichord. I'm sure she didn't sing the words, though, because they were all about, you know, chopping off heads and things. Not so good. National holidays in France are taken on the day on which they fall. So if that's a Sunday, tough. You don't get Monday off as a bank holiday. And that does actually include the 14th of July, which is one of my favourite holidays in France. Where I live, there's always an antiques fair during the day in Montreuil-sur-Mer, which is a lovely medieval hilltop town. And in the evening, there's a party atmosphere and fireworks are let off over the ramparts. And there's always a party at my local town hall. Everyone's happy and relaxed pretty much wherever you go in France on the 14th of July. People are celebrating. 
Yes, Bastille Day, or I should say le 14 juillet, before my French friends and family behind <laughs> me, is a real family event uh, in France. Everybody goes out. It's a bit like Christmas for small kids, for instance. You have the permission for once to stay out late, to party, to have whatever food you want, probably a bit of alcohol too, and you just have a great time all together safely until uh, the fireworks and sometimes even later. The fête nationale in France is when people who don't dance, dance. It's when people who usually go to bed early, don't. It's when uh, those people who always say that they don't like to party, do. And also, it's when you discover for the first time, it happened to me, that uh, your grandma is the queen of the waltz and your grandpa the king of the tango. It's a genuinely great family event. Oh, so. I love that. Your grandpa <laughs> tangoing. That's yeah. brilliant. So now you know everything you need to know and more about Bastille Day. You can celebrate it with us, you know, wherever you are. You don't need to be in France for that. That's ideal, obviously, but you don't need to. You just need to decorate a bit uh, your garden, French style, with some uh, French food and wine. And also you can listen to French music on Paris Chanson. Details coming up at the end of this episode. But now it's time for our listeners' question, Jenny. Got a question about France? Well, ask the experts. We reply to you in each episode. And we do it for free. So, Janine, what have we been asked? Our question today is from Constance Kutulakis of Toronto, Canada, who incidentally told me that she finds our podcast brilliant to listen to when she needs to declutter. <laughs> I wish it had the same. Yeah, I know. I wish it had the same effect on me, Constance, because I am a total clutterbug. Anyway, Constance's question is: Fashion Week. I don't understand. I've seen on YouTube. Different outfits by famous designers walking down these catwalks. And most of these outfits I see, I wouldn't be caught dead in, even if I had the money to buy them. Do the French actually wear these strange and bizarre outfits? Well, that's a brilliant question, Constance. And I can tell you that though you cannot see Ollie, he is in fact <laughs> not dressed <laughs> in At the all. latest designer gear, even though he is French. But we'll ask him what he thinks. So, Ollie. Is it true or false that the French wear the sometimes downright weird and bizarre outfits that fashion designers send down the catwalks at fashion shows? Well, am I the right person to talk about fashion in general? Uh, not sure, but um, I'll try. France, as you may know, is famous throughout the world and beyond, of course, for its uh, fashion credentials and for being the centre of haute couture. And French designers are the best. But really, Constance, I think most French people do not wear these sometimes strange outfits you see on YouTube. They are designed to get attention. But I think if you was to wear these things and get on the metro, for example, you would get some very strange looks. Mostly French fashion is about timeless, classic, well-made pieces that you can hold on to for years and uh, still feel good wearing them rather than filling your closet space with trendy, must-have-this-season pieces. I agree totally. And Oli, yes, you do know a bit about fashion, see? In Paris particularly, I do see some people wearing some weird and wonderful outfits, but certainly in my little village, everyone, everyone wears work overalls during the day with a cap or a beret, men and women, that is, and... Also, the women wear house coats, which sort of apron with sleeves to keep your clothes clean. The older ladies, not the younger ones so much. I live in a farming community, so we're a bit different from city and town living. But yeah, absolutely. French fashion is about being stylish, but mostly about feeling good. 
not sticking out because you're wearing massive puff sleeves. I think, you know, going back to the Bastille Day and the whole history thing, that one of the most stylish fashion icons of French fashion was Marie Antoinette herself. She left Austria. Imagine this. She left Austria. She was 14 years old to get married and arrive in Paris, a different country, to meet someone she'd never met before and marry him. And it's fair to say that she embraced fashion wholeheartedly. And I don't blame her because, you know, what else would you do? She loved clothes. She loved jewellery, hats, shoes and big, big hair. She made what they call the poof style popular pads and cushions. Uh, She's stuck in her hair to create structure and is like gravity defying updos. And then she'd stick feathers in and ribbons, jewels, ornaments. And in one case, I think she actually had a model ship on her head. Her updos and everyone copied her were anything up to a meter high. They must have been a total fire hazard in that palace. You know, all the candles in the hall of mirrors. Can you imagine it? And all your hair sticking up. Oh, no. But, you know, fashion does find its victims. And like I said earlier, she purchased 300 dresses a year. She never wore the same thing twice. She had up to 500 pairs of shoes in her closet. And these things were really, really expensive then. It said that her yearly budget for clothes was the equivalent of $3.6 million today. And she often spent double that. I mean, she'd give the Kardashians a run for their money, wouldn't she? But if she was alive today, I reckon she might well have gone for the weird and wonderful catwalk looks. Yeah, yeah. probably. I agree. <laughs> yeah. That was a great question, Constance. Thank you very much for it. If you also have a question for us, feel free to send it to Janine at thegoodlifefrance.com, Janine at thegoodlifefrance.com, or via our podcast newsletter. This is The Good Life France podcast. Oh la la! Le podcast The Good Life France. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Please feel free to share it with your friends. The more, the merrier. You have been listening to uh, Olivier Geoffrey and Janine Marsh. You can find me at parischanson.fr. And you can find me at thegoodlifefrance.com, where you can subscribe to the podcast, my weekly newsletter about France, and my fabulous free magazine, which is also at magazine.thegoodlifefrance.com. But for now, it's au revoir from me. And goodbye from me. Speak to you soon. The Good Life France podcast. Available on all podcast platforms. On thegoodlifefrance.com and on parischanson.fr. The most beautiful French songs of the 40s, 50s and 60s. Only on Paris Chanson. Available on your mobile, smart TV, computer and smart speaker 24-7. Visit parischanson.fr to find out more. That's P-A-R-I-S-C-H-A-N-S-O-N dot F-R. <laughs>